0: Welcome to Don't You Lie to Me. (laughs) Okay, let's go. Don't you lie to me. I'm gonna have another drink. Don't you lie to me. Explain that to the kids. Don't you lie to me. Okay, let's hear that story. Let's start interviewing. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Don't You Lie to Me. I'm your host, Jeff Bell, along with our producer, Warren Hicks. With this podcast, we'll be talking with artists and arts professionals in North Carolina to give you a better idea of the people responsible for providing great visual art in our community. In this episode, we're going to be talking to artist Carrie Alter. She's an amazing painter, drawer, and photographer. If you'd like to check out her work during or after the interview, you should go to her website, which is carriealter.com. That's C-A-R-R-I-E dot com. you can also go to our website which is don't you lie to com. you can also follow us on twitter instagram and facebook our twitter feed is at d y l t m n c hey there carrie
1: hello jeff thank you so much <laughs> for having me <laughs> now, it's just like, it's just
0: like <laughs> error, bad thing just touch me and I'll All right, we're going to do this. I just want to kind of get an idea of really who you are. So if someone was to see your work or uh, after listening would like to see your work, just to kind of know a little bit about you, uh, not necessarily uh, super in-depth as far as the work you make, but just sort of uh, really where you come from and who you are. So I know you're from Miami, is that right? Yes. Are you from the city itself?
1: Yes. (laughs) And
0: how was that growing up?
1: I don't remember much of that really? part of my life.
0: And and how old were you when you moved away? Oh,
1: I thought you were talking about just where I was born. I was born in the city.
0: Okay, and then where yeah. did you live after that? Well, we that?
1: moved to Weston, Fort Lauderdale area.
0: But that's still pretty close, yeah, right? Yeah, still
1: pretty close. Yeah.
0: And uh, what was it like growing up there?
1: <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. Why? <laughs> I'm blushing. See, look, I'm blushing. That's all right. <laughs> it's like taking a picture. Now I'm getting overheated. Oh, I think that, um, I know you can't hear blush, but I have to say that being 42, I do feel like I'm beginning menopause and I'd, I'd prefer maybe to talk about that right now over my childhood Okay. as I'm feeling this heat flash come on and that might help calm it.
0: So we're talking about the life change.
1: Yeah, the life change. Okay.
0: We can go all into that.
1: Right. Because now all of a sudden just saying that and feeling comfortable in my own skin being 42, I'm remembering all my childhood, which was a beautiful thing. I had a wonderful childhood in Miami.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. And so did you, were you into art when you were a kid?
1: I I started doing art when I was, well, I think way before I was 12, but I started taking it seriously when I was 12.
0: Now that's pretty early to be serious about something. Yeah, You know, so were you drawing mm-hmm. or painting? Well, it, or? I was
1: um, a graffiti artist and I was in a graffiti gang. That's when I started skateboarding <laughs> and um, learned how to spray paint and would do graffiti all over Miami. And I was in two different graffiti gangs. Um which I don't know if it's even okay now to say the names of the... Oh, I'm
0: sure it is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, AI was Artists Incorporated, and then there was MAC, which was Midnight Artist Crew. And um, they both had different members, but I was the only female member in both of the groups.
0: And so how does that work? We would
1: um, do lots of sketches, uh, usually using design markers. Remember those? Yeah, sure. They still sell them. So we would have design markers, and we'd do lots of sketches, and we would have our names tagged everywhere. And then once we all agreed on one of the um, design sketches, then we would go and spray paint it.
0: So it was really Hmm. uh, highly organized.
1: Oh, yeah. All gangs are highly organized. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. And so uh, is is anything about that still relevant to what you do now?
1: I think... It is, because I think in graffiti, just like most art forms, uh, drawing is the most important part. And in graffiti especially, there's a heavy reliance on line weight and line. And I think that my paintings are more of drawings than they are paintings. Even when they're very painterly and full of texture, I feel like I still include a lot of line just because that was my first love. Right. Graffiti.
0: So, and I know that you also... uh we're into music at a point, right? Before mm-hmm.
1: that? Well, music is what got me into the graffiti.
0: And how, how, it, yeah. how did that uh, happen? How did that transition happen?
1: Well, I was a country music singer. And, you know, so it makes sense that I would go into graffiti. Sure, of course. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, my mom had four babies, um, all within five years, and I'm the oldest. So when I was five, my little sister was born, the fourth girl. We're all girls. So my mom and dad got us a singing teacher so that they would have more time since there were so many of us, and Caterina was her name. She started coming over when I was five and teaching me piano and singing and guitar, and her mom was also a performer, but um, mostly Spanish dance, so we started going on tour as the altar girls. By the time I was 10, my little sister was five, and we all sang together and traveled, I thought for sure I'd be a country music singer, and we even tried out for Star Search. That was my my whole dream in life was to be a country music singer. Um, and shortly after that, she was, um, she was tragically murdered, and once I found out, I went mute for a while in school. And it was at that point that I started drawing because I wasn't speaking, and the graffiti gangs noticed me drawing. So they right. took me in, like their family, Um, and I've been drawing ever since.
0: So is music, was that like the end of music for you?
1: It was for a while. Anyway, I was refused to go into it, but I married a musician. And when I moved to Chapel Hill for grad school, I played with a band, Blue Green Gods for one year.
0: Yeah. So uh, when you changed, when you stopped talking, when you uh, started drawing, did that fulfill a similar need or was that something totally different?
1: Yeah, it was the same thing. I feel like I just found a different way to sing. And that's something Katerina always taught me, was that um, it's, it's all about passion. And one passion can easily translate into another passion, as long as you're passionate about that thing. And, and music and art, you know, have so much to do with one another. So it was an easy transition from one to another.
0: And what about your sisters? How did that How did that impact them?
1: Well, I don't think they ever really liked music. They were just doing it because it was, you know, we had lessons. They never felt what I felt on stage, so um, they didn't go into the arts.
0: So they went in a totally different direction. Yeah. And when uh, I know you went to school for uh, art, right? Mm-hmm. And did you have a sense of what you wanted to do at that time in art, or was it just you knew that? There was something out there that you wanted to do?
1: Well, I, I played tennis in high school and I didn't want to go to college at all. I just wanted to be. And I, I hated high school so much that um, I really couldn't imagine going to another college, like a college being an extension of a high school. But while I was playing tennis, this um, tennis coach guy came to our school or a, what are they a recruiter recruiter right. yeah so he offered me a scholarship to Brevard College which is in North Carolina Sure. and um and I hadn't applied to anywhere else and I thought well I guess if I could play tennis it would be worth going so I went to Brevard play tennis and took art classes um and I just I, I can't tell you what Brevard did for me. It was it's amazing. That college was amazing, and those two years changed my whole life. I ended up getting four degrees and staying in college after I left Brevard, which was only a two-year college. I went to Ringling School of Art, right, and um, only applied with my graffiti. So I was surprised I got in, wow. but um, but that was great. So
0: when you were at Brevard, you were making art.
1: Mm-hmm. I was basically doing graffiti on canvas, but you know taking right. art classes, but I got my associate's degree in English and creative writing.
0: And that's up in the mountains. hmm Right. So after that, how, was there a period of time before moving to Chapel Hill or was that, I know you went to Ringling. Mm-hmm. After Ringling, did you go straight to Chapel Hill or what was that about?
1: I, well, I went to Ringling for two years and then I went to Skidmore College for one year Um, and I'm fortunate enough to have a father that was willing to pay for my education if he believed in what I was being educated in, but after I dyed my hair green at Ringling, he was concerned, um, that I was doing drugs, um, and then I did get kicked out of the dorms because my boyfriend at the time was selling marijuana, so, (laughs) so, (laughs) (laughs) do we need to stop? (laughs) Warren was just cheering. I had had 24 hours Uh to get out of the dorms. And, um, of course, my father was worried with reason. So um, I had applied to Skidmore College the year before, and he had my application reprocessed. And um, my choice was stay at Ringling and pay for it myself, uh, which was very expensive as a private school or go to Skidmore, get a degree from a quote-unquote regular college, as he put it, um, and he would be more than happy to pay for me to get my degree at Ringling. So I went to Skidmore for a year, but I, I really didn't enjoy my time there, so I did my research, and I found that if I went to University of Tampa, I could take 22 credits in one like semester or something. I like overloaded and a summer. Right. It was a semester and a summer and get my degree in art history. And that would be a degree from a quote-unquote regular college. So I transferred to University of Tampa, which was only an hour away from Ringling, so I could hang out with my Ringling friends, although I didn't have much time with all my classes. Right. Got my degree and went back to Ringling and got my other degree at Ringling.
0: So I have this like uh, very crazy view or imagine uh, picture of what ringling is it's connected to ringling brothers initially right is that right
1: <laughs> i'm trying to remember the history because i used to be so well versed in that and i know it has to do that one of the founders was one of the ringling brothers right. but i don't remember much more past that
0: so you're not like going in a circus tent. You're, you're...
1: No, there actually is a clown school, though, right, right. next door. And so we, we knew a lot of the people who were going to the clown school. And New College is um, also pretty much right next door. So a lot of the great parties were at New College, which is like a gifted college for um, which one of the universities in Florida? University of Florida, maybe, or South? I don't know. One of the big Florida schools, it's like the gifted um, college which I should know because I think one of my um, friends went there.
0: So so by the time you left um, mm-hmm. Ringling, were you doing more traditional painting or what did that look oh, like?
1: Oh, yeah. Ringling is a very traditional school. So it was my first experience with the nude model yeah. and learning the foundations. It was um, it was like everything anybody who's not been to art school would imagine a traditional art school being. Right. We had to learn to draw realistically before we were allowed to Go away from realism. Like uh, learn anatomy, learn the body inside out. Spend multiple hours drawing the figure, um, proportions, perspective, all of the foundations. But by your junior and senior year, you had freedom. So it was like two concentrated years of this hardcore traditional foundation, and then two years of freedom.
0: And what was that like? I mean, in in hindsight, is that was that a good thing that you went through that or Mm -hmm. when you're in it was it like the worst thing ever or how, how did how did you see it at the time
1: it was very difficult it was actually more my undergrad experience was more difficult than my graduate school experience but I think only because my undergraduate school prepared me for grad school so a lot of people aren't prepared for graduate school and basically you get at graduate school what I got at Ringling So we had our own studios, we were left to our, you know, devices we could, we just worked and we had thesis and we had to talk about our art and um, everything you do in grad school, we did in undergrad.
0: So when you got to grad school, you felt pretty comfortable. It wasn't like a shock to the system.
1: No, it wasn't at all a shock. It was, and one of the reasons I chose Carolina to go to graduate school, um, not only at the time for some of the professors who were there, and some who are still there, but because they also give you a studio and pretty much leave you alone besides right. a few electives and graduate seminar, which I loved, you know, because you just learn about what's going on in the art world. Right. So um, and the critiquing process. But it was all very relaxed for me because I had come from such a strong foundation where a lot of my classmates were in a little bit of a shock, I think.
0: <laughs> like getting the critical feedback yeah, and, and sometimes negative Mm-hmm. feedback i mean do you, did you feel comfortable with that like if you got a a negative response to your work did did you so that didn't like tear you up you were okay and yeah could deal with it mm-hmm. it's pretty funny i never um i never got very upset about uh, criticism and uh, i don't know why that is exactly but i just sort of felt like i was in school and just making work and so it was in a way throw away a a lot of it just because i was figuring things out and so if something like that was critiqued it never really mattered to me but then you would see people that would just get really destroyed by it and it's uh it's a funny thing i mean i I think for for a lot of people it's a boot camp sort of thing right where they went through it and they feel like they've got to dish it out when they're professors and now you're a professor Mm -hmm. but you deal primarily with philosophy is that right
1: no, I, d- I teach um, the studio courses, but I also teach philosophy. Um, I incorporated into the studio courses and also just recently taught a philosophy of the arts. And now I'm teaching an ethics course in the arts. Um, but I teach philosophy at the Governor's School. Uh, I had. I didn't last summer, but for three years in a row. So I had practice with it there. But wait, before we go on to that part, and right. if we never go back to it, it's okay too, but back to the critiquing process, because one thing I do um, tell my students and even listening to you talk is that the thing is, it's one thing when a friend comes and gives you criticism because you feel like that's a good, you know, it's great because you trust your friends. Um, and even your classmates, you should feel like you trust them and the criticism's good for learning. But I think the hardest part and the best experience I ever had was getting the hardcore criticism from somebody I really looked up to like my professor at Ringling for my thesis year, Leslie Lerner. He, um, he gave me a C in painting and, and not only gave me a C in painting, but during my thesis just ripped it up. Right. Like, um, just told me I wasn't a painter. I need to go into sculptor. I'm um, obviously, um, you know, not wanting to be 2D, my work should be 3D, but it was the way he said it. And I held back the tears the whole time. But I'll never forget that feeling. And I'll never forget how it felt to get a C either when I worked what I th- I thought I was working really hard. But what that C did was it showed me that I wasn't working to my full potential. And what his criticism did was it gave me time enough alone to sit and reflect and build upon that and change you know try other things Um, and I I did a lot of work after that that was really bad but it helped me grow as an artist and um, I went to his studio the that was my my junior year right at the end that he gave me a C and I went to his studio in the summer before my senior year and I said Leslie I just want you to know um, and I called him first just keep an eye on me I know you only give one A for senior thesis but i'm i'm gonna be that a and then i walked out into my car and i was shaking i pulled around the corner stopped and just cried again oh because God. that's how nervous he made me right. i i just really looked up to this guy and um you know respected him and i just i felt and it wasn't about proving it to him but it was that i really felt like he believed in us all of us right. and he said what he needed to say to make us all work but Everybody handles criticism differently. Right. Some people would have just stopped there. Some people might have actually started making sculpture sculptures because that's what he said. Right. But I just took it as a way to really learn how to paint, you know, and yeah. try try harder in different ways.
0: It's um, funny that that level of trust that you put mm-hmm. in to the professor in that situation. I remember um, in my thesis committee, we had. Uh, I mean, I picked purposefully some really difficult people but people that I trusted and so when they said things I would really uh, believe it I would respond to it and then other times uh, we would have these very large critiques with all the professors and you could kind of see this grandstanding from certain professors uh, that I didn't think was based on in reality Uh, there was one particular professor that I would invite to my studio and he was super positive really great. And then the next week we would do these huge, uh, mass critiques and he would come in and just destroy you. And it, it was a lie. I mean, it was a grandstand for the other professors. And so I immediately started to sort of figure out who I could trust, which is a strange situation to be Mm. in, I think, because you want to trust everybody in that setting. And, uh, but you kind of have to pick, pick the right people, I think.
1: With that, and you have to just see how criticism affects you. You have to let, right. it, let it affect you and right. know that in the long run, criticism can be good if you listen and think about what's said.
0: Sure. And so now that you're not in a, uh, a university setting as, as a student, how do you process that? I mean, how do you critique yourself outside of that without having that voice, those voices talking to you about your work?
1: Hmm that's a tough one you know sometimes I still hear some of my best mentors voices but um, my kids help a lot they're you know kids are great because they they don't lie right and you should just start interviewing kids for this podcast but uh, they won't lie to you and so you can ask them a question about your work I call them up a lot and um, you know it makes me think about what I'm doing and you know then I have friends I'm in this art group you know
0: yeah I I think I know a little bit about it (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, so um, so we haven't really done critiques because that's not really our philosophy. But but you know we meet we meet and um, talk about art, and then you, when you know you take that back to your studio, even though it's just fun and socializing, right. even though there's a serious side, but it just helps to surround yourself with other serious artists. Right. So that helps. Yeah, I'm sure if I was really struggling with um, a painting or any kind of work of art, I can just call on any of there's you know close art friends and they right. can give me some criticism my husband does too he's really good at it
0: that's good I mean it's <laughs> yeah. great to have that uh and my my kids are the same way you know mm-hmm. they'll they respond immediately like oh this is I really like this you know mm-hmm. or um I don't what is you know this is you know they're very they're very honest mm-hmm. and for me um I like I like to make work that has a sort of in some ways a a kid-like feel. And so I love it when they respond to things. Cause I think that that's the sort of mindset that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know you have recently done a series with one of your sons mm-hmm. and how is that processed? I mean, it, do you, do you feel like it's something that could be ongoing or is it something that will inform your work after this or?
1: Yeah. You know, I'm really excited to see how it uh, informs my work after it's after I'm finished with it, but, um, I'm still working on it. He has, he's drawn on, um, over 30 canvases and I've only shown 14 of all of them. So it's got a ways to go. And, uh, currently I, I am talking with one curator who's, who's, I guess, representing the body of work and looking for venues. And supposedly there's a few interested. So I'm waiting to hear more about that.
0: And can you talk a little bit about the process, how making that, sort of happen making that body of work so your, your son made drawings right
1: mm. so my son my both my kids were in my studio a lot I'm trying to remember what oh, I was working on oh I was working up for a show I had and I was really busy all the time and Matt was busy because he had a show coming up you know a music show and so even though the kids are old enough to be downstairs, and I always kept my life separate. My studio is upstairs, and it was a kid-free zone. I never let them up there. But I started thinking, why not just let them up there? Because there was so much time that they would have had to be alone then. So um, they both came up a lot, and they were both drawing on paper, and you know, Kogan at my desk, and Max at the easel, and then... I don't remember exactly what happened the day I gave him a canvas. Either we ran out of paper, which is what I think happened because he likes the big paper, right. um, or <laughs> I had a whole bunch of 30 by 24 canvases that were already sitting there. But um, I'm pretty sure he ran out of paper, and I'm like, here, draw on this. So he took charcoal and he started drawing. But I told him, I said, Max, just so you know, I'm going to have to gesso over these eventually when I need them because right. canvases aren't cheap, right? No. And, um, and especially like if you build them yourself, like they're actually the same price nowadays. Did you know that?
0: To buy them than to build yeah. them?
1: Yeah, that's I mean, it's off the subject. but oh, So I was, if, you,
0: if, you, if you were to buy the stretcher and the canvas and do it yourself mm-hmm. and prime it, it's the same as if you just bought it already. Yeah. yeah.
1: Nowadays. Oh, wow. So I, because I just I feel looked like an into old that. Person, well, that, me too. Used to be the way. So you got me thinking of my ringling days when my studio was next to a wood shop and I would build right. all my canvases and they were so much cheaper. And now, you, if you buy canvases already stretched, um, bulk, they're actually cheaper. That's than, crazy. And less time, right. you know, but it, depending on the sizes. Anyway, I had all these 30 by 24. So he started drawing on them knowing that they wouldn't last forever. But he kept going and going. (laughs) And then there was like a good amount of them. Like it was on a day that I think there was four, but there could have been nine. I don't remember. I had studio visits with Laura Ritchie and um, Chris Fitiello that week. and And there were these paintings. So there must have been nine then. And I said to both of them, I'm like, I have this work I'm working on for this upcoming show of my own. But I look at these drawings and I'm thinking I should work with them. And both of them thought it was an something I should do. They gave me, oh, there's, they gave me good feedback. Right. Yeah. So then it all started. They're good people for feedback. Yeah, they were great. They actually helped me make that decision.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And so then you had him draw more. How many were in that, the show over at ArtSpace?
1: 14 were there, but what I told Max, um, I didn't tell him about ArtSpace until he got to, a certain amount because I didn't want him to feel the pressure. I didn't want him to do it because we were showing it together. So I waited to ask permission to switch my show until I knew he had enough to fill the space, which was about 12 paintings or 12 drawings. Right. And now he has over 30, but there's only 14 finished.
0: So you responded to the drawings and then you made paintings on top of the drawings based on his illustrations, right?
1: Yeah, this is this all so boring. It so, is. Doesn't it? Doesn't don't you sometimes feel like it's so boring to talk about your work?
0: No, no. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, not. I mean, I'm not bored talking about your work. I'd be bored talking about mine. Oh. But no, I think it's interesting because it's a different way. It's mm. a different starting point. I mean, normally you're starting with your ideas, right? Yeah. Of what you're, and I don't know your normal process. Do you, I mean? Do you make drawings ahead of time or do you just start? working either way you're Mm -hmm. starting from a different starting point jeff you just
1: hit on something okay you want to know what yeah okay this the fact is is my favorite part of a painting is coming up with the image and so that was a big challenge that was a huge challenge looking at these drawings and as much as i love the drawings that he made knowing that i wasn't coming up with the image i felt you know i was i uninspired but inspired at the same time right it was it was really strange and then and then after I painted one or two of them I actually I felt a little bit like I was just coloring in the lines and I thought I can't this isn't the purpose of this I can't I have to challenge myself right right so um I ordered house paint, a box of different color house paints. and um and my painting seemed to be kind of dark in colors, like muted. Sure. And so these acrylic house paints came, a box full of all these different colors. And I would pick one out, kind of close my eyes. Whatever color it was, I painted the background. And um, my whole goal was to maintain his quality. like he has this really whimsical quality of composition but also to feel like I was making it mine. So it was only around like the third painting where I felt like I was doing that and I went back to the first painting and ended up changing the first two um, to make them feel more like mine. So none of them are just a straightforward coloring in. They all have some manipulations and they all have a color challenge for me because the backgrounds are acrylic with random colors whereas all the stuff inside of it is oil.
0: Yeah, I thought it was really interesting because you you documented the drawings first, mm-hmm. and with the with the paintings, you could see the drawings next to them, and that, I mean, yes, they were great drawings. They were really interesting to me, and the the paintings were interesting. But part of what was also interesting was your decision making, like what you sort of enhanced or what you left out. You, your decisions. Uh, after his decision. So I thought that was really cool. And you also made like a coloring book, right? Mm-hmm. And how did that work?
1: I think it went well. I haven't really talked to art space about that yet.
0: But so, so the coloring book was what his original drawings and mm-hmm. then you could go on top of them and, yeah. and do what Color you want. Color them in. Right. Yeah. So when you, when you put out something like that, what do you, what do you think about that object? Is that a piece of art or is it just a supportive material? Is it something totally separate or how do you view that thing?
1: Well, the show is called Crossing the Lines, and there's a lot about the show that's about feminism, you know, and empowering the child, um, elevating the child, um, and and all of that stuff. And I I think the coloring book in this case, it's a way to show Max's original drawings, because my work isn't in the coloring book, but also to allow that creative, you know, um, freedom for whoever purchases it, whether it's an adult or child, to manipulate the lines or color over things or add things to it right. um, to change it up. So in that case, it becomes whoever buys it's art, right?
0: Right. So uh, I'm not sure why this is leading me to this, but I'm thinking about you teaching philosophy and uh, you talking about that. It, it's difficult for me because I've always sort of worked in museums, so I'm kind of around art all the time. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I think it... it it. Um, it sort of speaks to what I do or, or I get ideas about things.
1: Ooh, tell me an idea. You're Tell me a philosophical idea.
0: Well, I'm, I'm so far from f- real philosophy. The, it, the, most of everything that I look at when I look at art or when I think about anything, it's almost always starts with a material, a, a, a consideration of material, which is mm-hmm. uh, not very high-minded. But it's just sort of the way I approach my own work and looking at other things. So I I think it's more of a, Oh, you know, an inventive way of using a material or a different way. um, Or it can be even a traditional way. Like I, I really love painting and I love when people are like super in maybe it's an, a, an academic way of looking but people when people are super into the materials right mm-hmm. so they're into like this brand of paint and and thinking about the history of paint and what layering means and all of those things i think it's just uh people interacting with materials and really kind of um using them in a certain way and so that to me is is sort of what interests me maybe even more than like subject matter or the ultimate work of art. And maybe that's, um, just the person that makes things looking at it versus, uh, a person off the street that just sort of reacts to the thing itself. Uh, I don't know. I mean, do you, when you see something like that, when you see something totally unrelated to your work that can inform you, uh, it's really interesting to me. And, and, uh, as much as I love sculpture and I love looking at it, I'm almost always drawn to painting when I, like if I go to a museum or a gallery or something, I'm not sure why that is. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's what, because I started out first painting and thinking about it in that way or, um, or what it is. I mean, do, do you find that? I mean, are there certain things that when you go into a space and you're looking at work, what are you sort of drawn to? Is it even remotely close to what you do or is it something totally separate?
1: Well, your sculptures actually are like paintings. And I think one of the reasons maybe you're not as attracted to other sculptors is because a lot of sculptors are making sculptures. And even though you're making sculptures, the way that you use the different colors of wood or the different materials um, and the placement of how you attach them together, showing the nails and stuff, uh, it works as a painting, I think. It moves the eye like a painting and the texture is like a painting. So... um, so I I could see what you're saying about, I mean, I don't know a lot of other sculptors that I know there are a lot that deal with texture in their work that I would be attracted to. And I have been attracted to sculptures in museums, um, of course. But, um, but mostly I am attracted to painting, but it's like abstract painting. It's funny, like completely abstract. Even though I'm abstract, I'm also representational in right. my abstractions. But uh, like like uh, Philip Gustin's completely abstract just marks on paper or on right. canvas, uh, I can read them every time, even if I've never seen his work before. If I walk into a museum, if I've never seen that particular piece and I look across the room and I see those marks, I... I know it's his. Sure. You know, it's like everybody knows a Van Gogh, even if right. they've never seen that Van Gogh, because his marks were were a certain language that spoke Van Gogh. Right. Just like, um, just like Francis Bacon, his work—it's right. like it's hard to mimic it. There's right. certain artists that have a language with their marks, and those are the artists I'm attracted to. Right. And they could be sculpture sculptors or photographers. Um, or video artists there's a lot of video artists that actually uh, I look at their videos like moving paintings
0: yeah i mean there that's a um that's an amazing thing i mm-hmm. mean video is uh um i feel like an old person a lot of times when i look at video because it's uh it's not something that was there when I was a kid. You know, I can remember, um, or it was, but limited. You know, I, I, I wasn't terribly exposed to art growing mm-hmm. up, but like if we would go to New York or something, my parents would bring us to like, MoMA or something like that. And it was just incredible. You know? But I, I had these notions of what art was. And still, when I look at video, I'm just sort of in awe of, of uh, the limitlessness in a way of that mm-hmm. uh, medium. Um, and I know you also do photography. Um, how do you see working in something totally different or do you see it as totally different or is it an extension of what you do in paint or how do you, how do you think about that? (laughs) I'm
1: not a photographer.
0: (laughs) People that have galleries even around the world have disagreed with you and have included your work in shows. So Okay, so, so photography,
1: let me um, tell you how it started, the brief story of my photography, because I don't know if I'll continue it. I mean, I hope I will. I, I do feel more inspired by doing photography now, but, you know, there's only so much time in the world to um, do anything, and and painting takes a lot of time, and, and painting and drawing are my, my passions. And photography, I just, I love it, but it was an accident. What happened was um, Spectra... Um, Elisa Elisa Specter, sorry, Elisa. <laughs> See, I'm not pronouncing anything right. Asked me to do their um Insta Yeah, of I the love month. those. Yeah. yeah. So um that was back in February of last year, 2015. And um and I, I you know, I was interested when I saw the open call and back then I didn't know her that well and I didn't have an Instagram account. And so I'm like, right. how can I get involved in this? And she's like, Oh, that would be great if you'll do it for the month of February. I'm like, okay, so what do, how do I get an Instagram account? <laughs> like, oh, you could just use ours. <laughs> right. And, you know, that's what you do. You use hers, you use you the use gallery. You use the Spectre
0: Arts Insta- Instagram account right. for like a month, right? For a and month. And you get to put up whatever you want.
1: One, one post a day. One post a day. For a whole month. And so I had February. So I, I had, you know, only t- the 28 days. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay. But you can, you know, I think that, you could do your, like, I could have taken pictures of my paintings and put them every day, but I thought I need to challenge myself and do something different. So I, I looked around my studio, and I have this fantastic collection in my studio of right. taxidermy and weird dolls and clowns and toys, and and so I started um, making little still lifes and every day posting one a day, and by doing that, um, it started getting attention, that's when... Um, I, I was like, oh, well, maybe, maybe you know, I can try to put these in shows or whatever. Right. And then it, the LA gallery, it showed one of them, blew it up really big. I I got it back now, so I have it in my studio. Very cool. But then that Italian gallery, um, Next Gallery, they just emailed me, cold, cold call. They saw um, the Instagram account, and, they, and I posted all of those on my um, Art Slants accounts. Mm-hmm. And so all the photos... F- were there and they just contacted me. And I really, of course was skeptical. Like, Oh, is this gallery real? What right. if this is, you know, cause everybody's scamming artists these days. Um, yeah, it might yeah. end up
0: being the most popular t-shirt in <laughs> Italy or something.
1: Well, no, I, I mean, it ended up being a cool gallery. And, right. um, so it showed there, um, uh, which was my first international show and it was with photography, um, printed on aluminum.
0: Right. So that's yeah. pretty interesting. I mean, I, I know, uh, not coming from a photography background. I mean, you're taking these shots totally digitally Mm -hmm. and then you're asked to do shows. So then you're at that point, you're figuring out like, what is this going to look like? What, how, what size is this thing? Mm -hmm. What's the material? Um, That's a pretty interesting way to, it's a pretty interesting situation to be in.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it felt no different than it does when you're figuring out a composition for a painting or a drawing, you know, you you're just moving things around and dealing with color and light in the same way you do in a painting. Right. Only you get this automatic realism. <laughs> so,
0: so, so once you created these photographs, do you see them uh, in, in a way um, talking to your painting? Or is it, do you think of it so totally separate? Or will you make paintings? Will something about your painting change, having gone through that or, or continuing to do that? Or is that in your mind, is it something totally separate?
1: Oh, no, I, I've always done this. I just never considered it art. Right. Um, I, I mean, I collect things because they inspire me. And I, I have relationships with all my objects. And I feel like they talk to me, not in a literal, like, crazy you way. Sure? I'm not crazy. <laughs> yeah, but I do feel like they inspire me. There'll be times when I move in, um, you know, a taxidermy thing across the room because I don't feel like it's working where it is, meaning it's just aesthetically not pleasing. But right. um, that could be taken like it might be not be getting along with the clown it's next to, but I move it across the room. Um, So I've always moved things around and always let them affect and come into my storytelling and into my narratives in the paintings. So um, the photography thing was just documenting what I already do.
0: Right. So in your work, there is a creepiness quality, Mm -hmm. right? Am I allowed to say that? Yeah. So, you know, there is a combination. I would prefer
1: the word cryptic
0: cryptic yeah <laughs> it's a little bit different word but okay. but you know there's a combination of uh figural animal mm-hmm. um there is sort of this distortion of the figure or, or of what you're depicting sometimes in in combination with other elements so um you know i mean the 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 sort of general snapshot word how I think long about, is this podcast it's going on for a little yeah. while
1: oh my god Sorry. We're just gonna. We're I'm gonna record. To a, we're gonna
0: record a hell of a lot, and then we're gonna cut it down <laughs> to ahead. like seven I minutes. Was listening.
1: <laughs>
0: so no, no. I mean, I think the word sur- surrealism. Oh, y- you. you. know, you know, is something that I, I would, if I had to tag it as something. Mm. Uh, what do? Do is that what you consider it? I mean, what I just do you love think saying that word. Do you good say word. it again? Surrealism. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> no, <laughs> I mean, you know, it 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 sort of speaks to to that sort of thing it's not necessarily fully grounded in that Mm but um I mean how do you view it what do you think about it and and where do you think that comes from where does the
1: creepy come
0: yeah I mean where does it come Mm -hmm. from to distort a, a a figure or a person or an animal in that way or combine things I mean do you do you think you understand where that comes from or is it sort of outside of your understanding
1: well, I think everything is a little bit outside of everybody's understanding. But yeah. um, but I I also think one of the reasons, um, and you know what, even some across the Crossing the Lines work I did with my son, even some of that work is a little dark. It ended up being dark, but sure. it's probably the um, happiest, quote unquote, happiest work I've done compared to my other work that seems darker. Um, and I think this is just what I think. But um, most people who know me think I'm pretty happy and optimistic. And, you know, I, I tend to smile a lot. It's just my default facial expression. <laughs> um, but, but I think I get a lot out um, in the in the painting. And it, sometimes unintentionally, I, you know, whatever it is I'm thinking. And I, I don't necessarily think I'm a therapeutic type of artist. Like, right. it's not therapy for me to paint. Because I, I, I know I have to do it. But then again, we all need some kind of therapy. So when but, you say
0: you you have to do it, wh- why?
1: Well, I mean, if you ask my husband, if I'm not in my studio after a few days, I'm a bad wife and a bad mom <laughs> and just a negative person. I feel like I I to be a happy and more balanced person, I need to be creating. And I don't always have to be painting. I could just be drawing or reading about art or just looking right. at art. But I need to be in my studio.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I I totally get that, and and it's a it's a it's an interesting sort of line. Uh, I mean, I think uh, most artists would say that art, you know, in the sort of whatever era we're in, would not sort of cop to saying that they're uh, they're artists therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Like there's some negative con- connotation to that. But I think most artists that I know have this. N- real need to mm-hmm. be making something creative. So in that way it is a therapy. I yeah, mean, it, does it, balance it, you. it does do something for the mm-hmm. rest of your life. Right. And so again, I, we never really sort of talked about uh, you, the philosophy side of things. Mm-hmm. W- w- the more you've delved into that, I know you've done several talks and, and you've done classes. W- the more you sort of delve into that world, do you find it, um, does something for your work, or or how do you think about that?
1: You know, um, before this podcast started today, you know how I kicked your ass in chess.
0: I think it was a very close match. <laughs> it may be my first <laughs> my first time playing since I was eleven, but it was a very fair, even match. It was I lost really fun. In about I, I knew you have a <laughs>
1: You haven't played in a long time and, and I love playing chess, but, um, but chess and philosophy and philosophy and art and art and chess and life and all three of those things and other things, they're all the same thing, right? you know, they're just different ways of looking at it. And, um, you know, the same things, the, the thought processes that that you went through or I went through when we were just playing chess casually and having fun talking, um, are no different than the the thought process we go to when we're thinking about philosophy or when we're creating. It's right. like decisions you make decisions and you make sacrifices and you're willing to um, you know risk things in order to get further.
0: Right.
1: Um, so I think philosophy has taught me a lot about who I am actually by reading reading more about it and and I don't like to read. Um, fiction that much there's very few fiction writers that I that I enjoy um like very few maybe three <laughs> so I like um philosophy <laughs> so I like to read philosophy on my free time or that's a lot of fun like art. it is so much fun if you're reading the right stuff right philosophy can be very dry um but it also can be fun depending on what you're reading
0: right mm-hmm. so is that the direction you're teaching? You would like it to go into philosophy, or do you would you like to kind of have a balance of, of short, sort of traditional visual art teaching, or how do you see that going in the future? If you had your sort of uh, ideal, what would that be?
1: I wish I double majored and got a degree in philosophy because I feel like it would, I would definitely enjoy teaching it and combining it more often with my with the art. But um, I think drawing teaching drawing is. Is ultimately what I could do for the rest of my life. I just think it's so important, no matter what you go into, what field you go into, to learn how to draw and to slow your mind to see like an artist sees. Um, But I can incorporate philosophy into that. Right. Mm -hmm, So do you
0: do you find yourself doing that more? Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Like almost every lesson. Are your kids like what the hell? No, they're so into philosophy. They love it, especially uh, Max talks a lot about. About philosophy. That's really Asking awesome. questions about everything. Right. And we all do, right? We're always sure. asking questions.
0: I'm going to switch it to uh, religion for a bit. <laughs> so did you grow up in a very religious household?
1: Oh, um, hmm. <laughs> did you? <laughs>
0: I I I mean, I, we went to church all the time, but I don't oh. wouldn't call it relig. I wouldn't call it overly religious. Yeah. You know?
1: So, um, my my father's Jewish and my mother is Catholic. Right. Um, we had to decide. You the
0: kids had to decide
1: at a very young age, because That's pretty, if we wanted to be Catholic, we had to go through first communion, confirmation. Right. If we wanted to be Jewish, we had to go to
0: Hebrew school. And what did you choose?
1: Well, my I at that time. I wanted to be more like my mother as a little girl so and I, I, I cho- chose um, to go to church. <laughs> um, the only rule in our house was that we couldn't wear anything that resembled our religion. So no crosses and, um, you know, our Star Davids.
0: Really? Yeah. What, why is that?
1: Because it was an insult to the other parents. So um, we all, as a family, went to synagogue, and we celebrated all the holidays. And we, um, but we didn't all go to church, which was interesting.
0: What if you chose to do nothing?
1: I think we probably could have, but we were only like, like what, three or five at the time, five when you started to go to school. So that's
0: the age you're just dis- making this decision.
1: Yeah, because if you wanted to go to first communion, you had to. Right.
0: Yeah, that's pretty amazing it's to, really young. to be given that choice at such a young age.
1: Right. So I had my first communion and my confirmation. It wasn't until I gave birth to Kogan and I was on the hospital bed. So Kogan's 11, 11 years ago when I, um, 30 hours of labor and it was just hell. It was like the worst, you know, 30 hours ever. (laughs) And, and people say you forget and I, I do a little bit, but I still remember yeah. everything. I
0: remember being in the room and it did it's not tough. something I will forget. And I didn't even feel anything.
1: Yeah. Well, and I don't remember how it felt. I know it was painful. But what I do remember is that as soon as he came out, I I said to my husband, and he'll remember the exact words, but I, I said something along the lines, of, I, I think I'm Jewish.
0: Wow. <laughs> yeah that's pretty amazing
1: and um, and I know I I have Jewish blood sure. but it was when I had my first child that I was thinking okay I am I am Jewish you know it was like the spiritual thing that happened I don't know what it was maybe it was rejection from you know the gods I don't know I don't I've I don't know what I I know I don't really believe in anything right now, but um, if anything, I love the Jewish religion. Both of our kids went to temple for preschool, but they also know about um, you know the, the Christian side because my husband is Christian, of a Christian background, but we're not religious at home. So we just teach our kids everything so sure. they know what's in their blood and let them decide. But that's really and... interesting.
0: I mean, I mean, was that something you'd ever wrestled with or just after this whole thing you just said i'm jewish
1: well there was a time that i went through my teenage angst part um you know that thing
0: sure yeah remember that i think i'm still in that yeah yeah you are maybe
1: <laughs> i remember my dad I, I worked so hard on this drawing of jesus <laughs> 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 and I was- I was like 15 and I remember it was like for some school project or something and it had graffiti on the top of it and graffiti below it and then Jesus face right in the middle and um, I came downstairs after hours of working on this to show it to my parents. I was so proud and of course my dad got mad and at the time I didn't think he had the right because it was mostly about how long I worked on it and all this and but in retrospect I understand why he got mad but my backlash was to go upstairs grab a razor blade and um, cut my thigh from like my knee up to where my underwear line is with a giant cross. And once the blood started flowing out, like the cross was bleeding, I went back downstairs and just stood there and <laughs> waited for him to notice. I got spanked. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's uh, As well I don't, you should. yeah, I don't think we've got any more time to go into something <laughs> quite like that. But uh, yeah, OK, good on you. <laughs> <laughs> when you're starting a painting and you're thinking about what you're going to do, mm-hmm. you've got a blank canvas there. Mm-hmm. How do you get to an image? Mm-hmm.
1: So I look around my studio and then I um, start writing sh- short stories based on usually they start from an object, but sometimes from life experience like my last series before um the one I did with my son Bald Mountain that was all about an affair and um my parents are divorced and they were married 28 years but my father had um had affairs throughout the marriage and um and so I I tried to put that into and you you used the word surreal earlier and um I wanted to make a sort of surrealistic story that would show um, or illustrate somehow what would happen in an, uh, you know, what the results would be of an affair. And so I created the beautiful grotesque, which is this large female form with just huge breasts, a little bit of hair on her nipples and like a citrus vagina, which, um, you know, she was somebody who originally had an affair and landed in the landscape of Bald Mountain, where everybody goes once they have an affair. And they either turn into a pile of decrepit bones and skin, as in the main painting for the series, or some of the females are fortunate enough to become the beautiful Grotesque. And the beautiful Grotesque walks around, and she has a power of sort of, um, like, what's the word for that... Um, what is the word where you get followers? People, you, people are just like she's like a magnet right. for prolific minds, and all the prolific minds I um, like talk a about,
0: siren or something like that, or
1: like, um, like she hypnotizes uh. the prolific minds, and the prolific minds are all of the men who are also bald because the first thing that happens when you get to Bald Mountain after an affair is you lose all your hair, and that's your first the first big fear, which I think a lot of people have anyway, losing hair. And then, um, you know, you, whatever happens happens. So the, the beautiful grotesque walks around forever haunting all of the prolific minds, which, which are all of the men who are limp, you know, their penises are just lying there, but they can't help but follow this beautiful grotesque around, uh, bald mountain so that all came from a short story that I wrote, and the two main characters are caught on the pile of, um, the, like a, a haystack of decrepit body parts, waiting to see what what's going to happen to them. And in that moment where they're just staring at each other, they're caught in this silent scream, which the short story talks about. And uh, um, you know, it's like a waiting period, caught in a moment to see what will happen. And like most affairs. Good things don't usually result, but there are others that, you know, things work out. So it leaves it open to your imagination. Anyway, that was probably a bad description, but the point is, is that I wrote a short story about right. it. Uh, imagination kind of surrealistic idea of where we go if we choose to have an affair.
0: So in a way, the the resulting paintings are or narrative. I mean, they're mm-hmm. they're telling a story. Is it important for someone to be aware of that story that you've created, or is it uh, is that something else that's just merely uh, a sketch in a way for where you're going with the paintings? Do you let mm-hmm. people know that this is the story it's based on?
1: Not always. Um, in that series, because um, I had a show. Um, where I showed all of that work, there was a short story that was issued, but it was a short story that was sold in a collaboration book. Um, I did the show with George Jenny, and we worked on collaboration drawings. So we both wrote a short story for that book, and the only rules we had with the story was that it had to be a conversation between two people. So I don't know if the idea of the affair came out, but the title is That Night on Bald Mountain, I I don't think it's important that a viewer necessarily knows the artist's intention. I think art should be open for interpretation, no matter what it is. So I wouldn't care what direction it was interpreted. But that's how I start with my, how I come up with my images.
0: Right. Bitchenstein. Let's hear about that.
1: Here's a story.
0: Okay, let's hear that story.
1: (laughs) This is a story I tell my students on the first day of critique, before their first critique. And on the board, I um, have the definition of epistemology. How do we know what we know? And we talk about aesthetics and the importance of both. I was reading this short story. Um, it's a, a book called The Pig That Wants to Be Eaten. And I was reading it to my children a few years ago. And you never know what children pick up on, but they pick on always more than you think. Mm-hmm. So um, a few days after I read them this one particular story by Wittgenstein, um, It was raining, and the kids couldn't, you know, they didn't want to go outside. They could go outside, but they were like, what can we do? And I hate that question. They know I hate that question. And I'm like, well, if you ask me that again, I'll give you a chore. So find something to do. So the kids go into, and this is all me telling now to my students. So the kids go into the laundry room, and they each get a shoebox, and they tell each other, we're going to go into each other's rooms, our our own rooms, and we're going to put something in the box, and then we're going to close the box. And when we come out of our rooms, we're going to just... The only thing we're ever going to say to each other is Beetle, no matter what questions are asked. Beetle, Beetle, Beetle. And so they go in their rooms, and one kid is thinking, uh, well, Kogan's like, should I put something of Max's in here, or like one of Max's toys, and, or should I cut a chunk of my hair off? And um, Max is going through the same dilemma in his studio, like, should I put my favorite bear in the box? But he doesn't know how long the game's going to last, so he makes the decision not to. So I don't know what they put in the box. And um, they come out of the box, I mean, out of their room, and they're standing outside in the hallway of their rooms, and they can't help it. Their curiosity gets the best of them. So um, one asks the other, what's in the box? What color is it? Is it blue? And um, they're like, beetle. Beetle. Beetle, and I hear this going on. I'm in the kitchen, I hear Beetle, 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 and all these questions, and Beetle as a response. And I'm thinking, wow, that's a lot like Wittgenstein, you know, story that, that something he wrote and, and spoke about in reference to pain and um, the problem with language. So, <clears throat> anyway, long story, but they take this game on for days. The, they end up taking it to school, the boxes, they take the boxes to the grocery store. One time at the grocery store, this very Gentle elderly man came up to them when I was with them, and were like, "Oh, hi, little girls," because they both have long hair. <laughs> but um, they they don't even respond to that question anymore. Right. They they used to say we're boys, but now they don't care. That, and he said, "What's in the box?" And they were like, "Beetle, beetle." And at that point, I was a little embarrassed, but I try not to interfere with their social life. Right. So <laughs> so they they anyway. Finally, a teacher calls, and the teacher says, um, so I'm calling about um, Max because he's been bringing this box to school, and um, I'm like, "Wait, is it causing trouble? Is he being a distraction?" And she's like, "No, no, it's not that. He usually only brings it out to recess, and you know, he's appropriate with the timing." I'm like, "So, um, what's the problem?" And she said, "Well, I was just wondering what's in the box," and, and I said, "I don't know. <laughs> it's just a, it's a game they're playing, and they're having fun. So I don't, you know, I, I haven't stopped it." All right. So then the end of the story comes here. One day it's five or what time will we wake up at that? The buses come at like 630 last year. The buses were coming or the year before at 630. And so, um, you know how in the morning you're really fragile, like you'll cry over anything. And so so I'm, I'm making them breakfast. And I, and at that time I was still making them hot breakfasts every day. I thought that was really important. So I was like making eggs or something. And um, they had their boxes on the table, and I said, hurry up, it's time, the bus is going to come, and it's getting close to 6.30, uh, grab your backpacks, and I'm putting dishes into, uh, into the dishwasher, and this probably won't even go over well on a podcast, because when I'm doing it for my students, I act it out, and um, I'm walking around the room, and then I, I show them how I kind of my, my knee went into the dishwasher and I, I my foot on the ground really loud and I grab my knee and I say, ow, really loud. And all the students jump. And, but, but then the kids come walking into the room and into the kitchen and they're like, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, I'm holding back tears. I'm like, just get, just get your backpack. It's time to go. And they go into the, to get their backpack and then they come back again without their backpack. And I'm furious right I just want to cry already I, just want, like right? <laughs> I just want them to go but they they look at me with their little faces and um I forget which one of them said it but they look up and they said mom why didn't you just say beetle and it was at that moment and it was it was just like the best timing because it was the week of my first critique with one of my drawing classes and I remembered at that point, one wow, my kids really got that story. And a lot of people don't understand what he's saying the first time they read it. But um, I, I, at that point, I stop and I ask my students, why would I tell you that story? They're, they're like, what, that's the end? <laughs> I'm like, that's the end. Why didn't you say beetle? Why would I tell you that story the day before we're having our first critique? So why do you think, Jeff? Why would I tell you that story the day before you're having your first critique?
0: I've got a lot of sort of thoughts about it but um and I'm not familiar with the story itself that the bittchenstein story mm-hmm. um I think it, for me it's a, a a different viewpoint or to get yourself out of the current situation or to to be able to reevaluate your own situation in a way so like if I was in a critique if I could step back and not take it personal or look at it in a different way is how I would think about it. Is that totally wrong?
1: The thing is, I don't I don't even think there is a wrong answer, um, especially as a teacher. I feel like there's no wrong answer, so I wouldn't tell you you were wrong. Um, but the story that I read to them from that book, The um, Pig That Wants to Be Eaten, was almost identical to the game they decided to play. So all the information that you need to know is within the game, and the point of the story, since he was talking about pain and the problem with language, in, in that particular story of the beetle, um, is that I could hit my leg the same place that you do or Warren does, and we could all go to a doctor the next day and look at a happy chart, and we might all point out a different number of right. pain, right. the level of pain we're in. So if you can think that it doesn't matter what's in the box, but the box represents you and what you're thinking, it could be your, your brain or your mind, when you're looking at art, it's just as subjective as the idea of pain. And it's hard to put into words. It's hard to come up with a language that defines how we're feeling when we're looking. So if you can take that story and just apply it to the idea of looking at art, then you won't be afraid to say what's on your mind. Because just because you don't like something doesn't mean the person next to you won't like it. And just because, you know, usually 50% of the people will like what you're doing and 50% won't that and you just should expect that in art. But most important in critiques, especially with freshman college students, is that you're comfortable speaking your mind. And knowing that it's just as subjective as pain, the way we look at art is why I tell that story.
0: Do you you expect Explain that to the kids. Mm -hmm.
1: Of course. After I I give them um, a few minutes to come up with different ideas of why I would have told them that story. And then I talk more about epistemology. I talk more about the problem with language. And um, I talk about how we need to let language work to our advantage. And, you know, you don't have to be an artist to be a good critiquer. um, But you're all artists.
0: So It's it's interesting uh, because at that point, the majority of students don't have the sort of general bullshit critique verbiage uh, to fall back on or even understand. So that's, uh, I can't imagine trying to critique work without that language that after a while we all kind of know, we all kind of understand. Um, It's really interesting. I had two um, professors at Greensboro that, went to college and they were from Britain and they went to to school in England. And they said, when, when you start out and you're like in the sculpture program at a university, you come in and you make work. And then within X number of days, you have a critique in front of all the students and all the faculty. And you, it's gotta be a horrifying experience, but you are immediately sort of thrown into this world of, being harshly criticized and, and having to discuss your work. Uh, and I, in in a way it seems sort of horrifying for a student to start out that way, but imagine how freeing that is to be immediately put into that world. So after a short while, it's just, that's the world you're in. You know, I, I think it would, uh, it would really open you up in a way to, to be in that kind of system, but But at first, it would, of course, be horrifying.
1: Well, I don't actually let the artists uh, um, talk during the first critique. During the first critique, it's all about everybody else. And after, I've been teaching now for 16 years. And before I was telling this story, it was, as you can imagine, you probably remember those critiques in undergrad when nobody spoke or were afraid to speak. Sure. But ever since I started telling the story um, and talking about philosophy, Somehow it's liberated the students, and our critiques from day one are just so active and exciting and energized. And they will argue respectively about works of art. And so, the first critique the artist is silent when we're on, you know, her, his, or her. I'm, at, I'm teaching at Meredith College now, so it's all hers. But um, when we're talking about that particular piece of work, the artist isn't talking, but the other students are highly energized.
0: Well, all right. Well, thank you, Carrie Alter, and somewhat thanks to Warren Hicks for whatever he's done today.
1: Oh, hi, Jeff.
0: Hey, (laughs) can you sing that song for us again?
1: As I was walking down the street one bright and sunny day, I saw a great big wooden box of floating in the bay. I opened (laughs) it, I forgot. I pulled it in and opened it up, and much to my surprise, I discovered a right before my eyes. Beautiful. I picked it up and ran to town as happy as a king. I took it to a guy I knew who'd buy most anything. But this is what he hollered at me when I walked in the door. Oh, get out of here with that. And don't come back no more. Get out of here with that and don't go back no more perfect (laughs) I traveled (laughs) no seriously perfect (laughs) that was cool
0: Don't You Lie to Me is funded in part by the Visual Art Exchange's Lighter Fluid Award if you aren't familiar with those fine people you should check out their website for more information about their exhibitions artist benefits and special programming their website is visualartexchange.org we also want to thank of course matt mcmichaels for the use of his studio trusty woods his equipment and his patience the theme song was composed by our own warren hicks and the logo design was by artsy martha thank you for listening and please tell your friends to listen as well thank you If you'd like to find out more, please go to our website, which is me.com, and you can find links to the guests we have, images of their artwork, and you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our Twitter feed is at D-Y-L-T-M-N-C. If you are interested in sponsoring Don't You Lie To Me, you can email us at D-Y-L-T-M-N-C at gmail.com. We love you, people. (laughs)